0: brief moment to get to their seats. But once you do get to your seats, why don't you open your Bibles to... Who wants to guess? What, what book am I going to be in? <laughs> they got it. Yup, Psalms. I'm, I'm accepting that I'm probably just going to be a, a Psalms guy for a little while. But open your Bibles to Psalm 50. We'll be in Psalm 50, and we're going to be looking at a sort of Thanksgiving-oriented theme, but from a a very different angle than uh, we might expect. But Psalm 50, it's a psalm from not David this time around. We're going to be looking at the first psalm written by a character named Asaph, Very, very interesting character named Asaph. But Psalm 50 is where we'll be reading, and let's open in a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you that we have a full and complete copy of your word in front of us, Lord. We're grateful for that. We give you thanksgiving, an offering of thanksgiving, Lord, just for the fact that we have your word, that we have this building, that we have your Holy Spirit indwelling us to help apply your inspired word to each individual heart as needed. Heavenly Father, we we just ask. We, We come here with varying levels of things going on lord even just tiredness would you please grant the help of your holy spirit to just be attentive to your word lord to be listening for what it is you might be saying please do convict where conviction is needed comfort where comfort is needed spur us on to love and good works Help us, Lord. We want to see things, hear things, know things about you from your word this morning. And I can't do that. But Lord, your your spirit, you can give a greater portion of your spirit to me as I preach and Lord, to your people as they listen. Please open things from your word to your people that we be nourished in the inner man, built up, Lord, for your own glory and namesake. We ask these things. We love you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Psalm chapter 50, I'll begin reading and then we will start just breaking this down. Psalm 50 beginning in verse 1, if you got an ESV, it will say on the top of it, God himself is judge. A Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you if you see a thief you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers you give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit you sit and speak against your brother you slander your own mother's son these things you have done and i have been silent you thought that i was one like yourself But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So when I initially picked this psalm, I thought the Thanksgiving theme was the theme that would 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 be fitting. Um, but the more I sat with it, the more it just became apparent to me just how heavy this this psalm is. I mean, if it's the first appearance of Asaph, it's like he's not pull any punches. He just shows up right on the scene, and distinguishes himself as a very fiery writer, a very fiery, um, in fact, he's not just a songwriter. The the Bible identifies him as a prophet. So this is not just a a song for singing. This is a prophetic piece of music whereby Israel is being called out. It's kind of hard to imagine singing this sort of song congregationally because it's just so heavy, and yet this is one of Israel's songs that got there into the psalm book, and God does it on purpose. We need songs of this sort because it helps us stay on the right course But Asaph, let's just talk a little bit about Asaph, who Asaph was. I mean, David needs no introduction. We all know about who David is and what David's like. But Asaph is, you know, uh, maybe lesser known than David is. But uh, super interesting, super interesting guy. I already mentioned that he is identified as a, a prophet. He is identified as a prophet, and he is basically a worship leader who's been appointed by david and he has uh he serves under david's kingship and under solomon's kingship so this guy has been around for a lot he's seen a lot he writes i'm sure with lots of perspective and the spirit is using asaph here to just call attention to something that's gone very wrong in israel I want to read just real quickly a couple of backgrounds about Asaph. So he is definitely one of the most prominent of the chief musicians under both David and Solomon. And he was he was there helping to lead the worship service when the Ark of the Covenant is coming from Zion and it's getting into Solomon's temple. And if you guys recall that account, it was such a profound day. I mean, anyone who's there the day that this happened, when the Ark of the Covenant goes into Solomon's temple, probably remembers it for the entirety of their life. Certainly, Asaph remembers what happened that day. I'll read it to you real quick, just to give some of the background of just the kind of stuff Asaph has been witnessed to. This comes from Second Chronicles 5. It says, And all the Levitical singers, Asaph... Heman and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen. This is 2 Chronicles 5. You don't got to turn there. Uh, I'll just read it to you. But Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen, wearing these beautiful clothes, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised, the trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. They start singing this line. They don't get too much further than this. They start singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then says the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled with, the house of God. This is the sort of glory that Asaph has been witness to. And now you fast forward and Asaph now, I suspect that he's written this when he's a little bit older and he's perhaps seen just the decline of morale. He's seen this mountaintop sort of expression of all Israel celebrating, worshiping their God. And then Perhaps as time just progresses, they cool off and things have gotten to a point of just dry, ritualistic formalism. And he has to write this song and remind Israel. And God is inspiring him to do this. But let's, let's just start reading from verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Now we know a little bit of who this prophetic worship leader is. A psalm of Asaph. And he starts by just reminding us of who it is that we are dealing with, who it is that is speaking. He says this threefold emphatic declaration of the name and the nature and the power of God. The Mighty One, God the Lord, El Elohim Yehovah. I don't know how often you guys speak those sorts of names in the context of prayer. But for me, just those names start to frame His holiness in a bit more weighty of a manner. God, just the word God, it gets so, I don't want to say played out, but everyone uses the word God. God bless. I was at Chick-fil-A the other day, and they're just like, oh, have a blessed day, and God bless, and... It, It just becomes like a a word that has no weight or impact. But when you hear the mighty one, God, the Lord, El Elohim, Jehovah, that just gives a different flavor to it, a different impact, a different reverence and solemnity. But it says the mighty one, God, the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So Asaph reminds us of the authority of this holy mighty god and in verse 2 he says out of zion the perfection of beauty god shines forth so i love the juxtaposition that can kind of go on here you you see his might his holiness how powerful he is the authority he has over all of creation and nature and then this beauty aspect gets brought in and and something that came to my mind from this is just revelation chapter 4 i i won't read it all in detail but revelation 4 we get this glimpse of the throne of god and it has it has elements that are absolutely terrifying there is fire there is like lightning and tempest and there's fearfulness there and then yet at the same time as this absolutely awe-inspiring terrifying vision that is being seen of the throne of god in revelation 4 flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and seven torches of fire burning there's also a rainbow (laughs) there's also the appearance of an emerald and a sea of glass like crystal and the one sitting on the throne has the appearance of jasper and carnelian these precious stones so i read verse two and it and then verse three and they're right side by side with one another there's this beauty this shining glory of god that it's captivating it you you want to be close and yet at the same time you're just terrified by how much is present there in verse 3 it says our God comes he does not keep silent before him is a devouring fire around him a mighty tempest and surely this sort of stirs up the remembrance of God in the way that he appears on Sinai and in the wilderness in the fire and the cloud I don't know how often you think about that weightiness of of who God is when you pray, but it seems that Israel has had this tendency and it's a perennial, cyclical, pernicious tendency to just forget who it is they're dealing with. And you can see that from verse 21 where it says, you thought I was one like yourself. They had just gradually, I suspect, begun to have these lower and lower views of God and we need these sorts of reminders from scripture about the majesty of God so that we can actually engage with him in a way that's appropriate because I mean you look around there's been such a diminishing of the glorious aspects I mean he is beautiful and he is meek But I love that song where it puts them both side by side, meekness and majesty, meekness and majesty. There's a devouring fire before him. There's a mighty tempest before him. There's all kinds of reference. I could multiply cross-references. I mean, Deuteronomy 4, where it says, for the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Listen to this one from Isaiah 33. This one will be important a little bit later. But it says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Here's what they say. They say, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So this is how Asaph just starts his song he's reminding us of who god is he is beautiful he shines forth from zion the perfection of beauty he's close he's not all far away he's right there in zion the city of god and he is shining forth he has a witness for himself but there's something fearful and tremble inducing if i could say it that way about this god Asaph reminds us, and it reminds Israel of this. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. This powerful, fearful God has stuff he wants to say to his people. You might think of 1 Peter 4.17, where it says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this is very heavy. It is very solemn. We're not going to stay on the solemn note the whole time, but it is necessary to just establish the theme uh, faithfully. This is very heavy, fearful, fearful. Entrance into the psalm that we have here He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people God begins speaking verse 5 Gather to me my faithful ones Or if you have a different translation it may say gather to me my saints Gather to me my saints my faithful ones Who made a covenant with me By sacrifice There's a covenant relationship between God and these people verse 6 the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge selah so you see this two times repeated verse 4 saying he's he's like gathering all heaven and earth as as witness to, for the judgment of his people. He's summonsing them and saying, come, I have to talk to you about something. There's something that you need to know. And he's talking not just to a bunch of heathens and stuff. He's talking directly to his people. So this is this is for ancient Israel and this is for us. This is for the people of God to hear because the things that they were victim to and slipped into, we do too. In fact, reading this uh this psalm i feel like it would fit right in with the letters to the churches in revelation chapter two and three where he's he's telling the churches whoever has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and the spirit of god gives like a an evaluation a, a report a report card of hey this is what i see i know your guys's works this is what i see this is what's good Here's what I see that is not good. And he says, just hear. And that's just how he starts in in verse 7 when when God is speaking. Verse 7 in Psalm 50, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. So pause right here. There's two kinds of audiences or two categories or subcategories, if you will, of people that God is addressing here. He just starts off in verse 7. He says, hear, O my people. And then if you jump down to 16, he says, but to the wicked, God says. So, so he starts off with people that I could categorize if we want to do it in a, just sort of a more present day verbiage here o oh churchgoers and i will speak o oh christians i will testify against you he is not talking to heathen people here he has he has things against things to say against his own people so these people Um, at least in this part, are showing up and offering burnt offerings. If we want to kind of give it a transpose it into modern day context, these are people who show up to church and they give tithes and offerings. They sing the songs. They attend faithfully. They're, They're not ditching on Sundays. They're showing up. But God is not content with mere compliance and attendance. He wants more than that. Something is is glaringly missing when God looks at these people. And it didn't start out this way, but it it drifts this way. It's a slow process of getting to this place where these people are and where we can get. In verse 7, not for your sacrifices. This is verse 8, actually. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Do, they're doing what God has commanded them to do. He, he, he asked for burnt offerings. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on thousand hills. 11, he says, all that moves in the field, mine. Verse 12, for all the world in its fullest are mine. Mine, mine, mine. God owns it all anyway. And the people of Israel have somehow drifted into this weird emphasis on just the bare minimum of, well, if we bring the animals and, and, and burn them, That'll be enough, right? This is all God wants. Perhaps they were dealing with unlearning some of the pagan thinking that they had come from, because with these pagan gods, it was like the belief, I I I think, is that the pagan deities, when you gave them a sacrifice, a burnt offering or a blood offering, the, the deities would ingest it. It would appease and satisfy and satiate these weird foreign deities. And God is saying, I am not like that. That's not what I've prescribed these sacrifices for at all. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own all of this. You guys have the wrong emphasis on just doing the bare minimum and and showing up and giving these offerings. And then God gets to The thing that's missing that he notices so pronouncedly, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. So these people were, I I get the sense that they were doing the right things. And we can drift into this. You could do the right stuff, you could show up to the building, and yet something gradually, slowly, just like in Revelation, where it talks about the first love. It's just, it's it's been departed from, and there needs to be a return to the first love. And God is saying in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is, <laughs> if you want to look for a A New Testament parallel here, uh, we can go to, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews talks about this, talks about doing this in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, speaking of Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is something that started to be missing. The people were doing the actions. They were doing the sacrifices. But something from the lips, something God glorifying from the lips of the people of Israel was decidedly absent and extremely noticed to God. He cares about what comes off of our lips. It's not enough just to give the, the bare ritual. He's looking for the heart. He doesn't want just compliance and attendance. He wants a heart that from its overflow, just like Jesus talks about, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If a heart is, if if a heart is lacking in thankfulness, then that's going to show up on the lip level. There's going to be an absence of thanksgiving. And God wants this. He notices. He very much notices when this is lacking and he cares about it verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And he's not just talking about like the thank offering. He's talking about the the speech thing, a heart attitude. Offer to God. If you have a footnote there um, in the ESV, I think it says, make thanksgiving your sacrifice. Make thanksgiving your sacrifice and then he 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 also highlights something that had, that had gone wrong and perform your vows to the most high so there was there was a i suppose a cheapening of people's word they would say something they would they would make a promise with their lips, and they would be slow to fulfill it. And I don't want to multiply all the cross-references here that speak about the importance of vow-keeping, but it's not a small thing. God notices, you guys are not keeping to your word. You're telling me that you're going to do something, and you're not doing it. You're not following it through. You're not thanking me. There's there's just a, a bare minimum showing up, and you're, you're actually not following through with your, your vows. And if we want to jump back up just to verse 5, he says, Gather to me my saints, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. There's a covenant relationship. There's a vow. When I hear vows, I think of wedding vows. Isn't it easy to forget what you said on that day? Isn't it easy to forget when everything was all beautiful and the dress was there and all the witnesses were there and you made these big lofty things that you promised, you vowed to your spouse and then years pass and are, are you keeping them? Are you performing your vows? Israel needed a reminder because they were not. And they were not honoring the covenant that they had made. They were not performing their vows to the Most High. And we go to verse 15, and something else apparently was not happening. Otherwise, why would God tell them that they needed to be doing it if they were already doing it? Verse 15 says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Perhaps there was a drift to just self-reliance or reliance on the nations for help or just other things and they were not even thinking to make their first resort let's call let's call to God. I think we could all relate to that. You have something difficult that happens and you spin your wheels and you fail and then you call out to God. Then you call upon him in the day of trouble. And then he does deliver you and you glorify him and you thank him and you're so glad but why did it take so long why do you have to get exhausted before you called out to him this is what was going on apparently in israel as well they were not giving thanks they were not keeping their word and they were not quick to call upon the lord in the day of trouble and The thing that was at stake here and the thing that is at stake here for us is that the glory of God is either given to him by the way we do this or not given to him. Verse 23, it says, One who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. And the one who doesn't, by implication, I think it's safe enough to say, where this thanksgiving thing is lacking amongst the people of God, to that degree, there is glory being robbed from him. God does not receive glory from us just kind of flinking through the Christian life without this continual sacrifice of praise to God. As it says in Hebrews thirteen fifteen. through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name god notices this and he notices when it's missing and his glory is on the line the glory he gets from his people So he's giving them their kind of report card, their assessment in verse 7 through 15, and this is to churchgoers. This is to the people of God. This isn't to a bunch of heathen idolaters off somewhere out there. He's talking right to the the Christians, the the Israelites, the the people that do their burnt offerings and show up and pay their tithes. But then in verse 16, he, he pivots, and he says, but to the wicked... God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? So they were. You get the sense that these people who are identified as wicked were still talking that talk, taking that covenant on their lips. But there was a big disparity between what they were saying and what they were doing. And even a disparity between is their saying and what it is they're saying. They're taking his covenant on their lips and then we're going to see what else is on their lips. But verse 17 says, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your Mouth, free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like you yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Remember I'd, I'd mention Isaiah 33. I'm bringing this up because we could get to verse 16 and say, all right, verses 7 through 15, God's speaking to Israel, and then he's, he's going outside of Israel, but he's not going outside of Israel. He's, he's talking to people that are within the same building, the same assembly, two people in the same place, those who are at least, they're making an effort, but the heart has drifted from the first love, and those who, it's just cheap talk. They take the covenant on the lips, but then in the next minute, they're, it says that they're keeping company with adulterers. They're taking pleasure in in, in in seeing a thief. They hate discipline, and there's a progression here. But Look at this progression in, in, in verse 17. It says, for you hate discipline, so you don't want no one telling you what to do. You don't want to be corrected. You're very unteachable, and so... Because you hate discipline, then you do not want to look into the word of God, which corrects you and exposes you. And so it says in verse 17, you hate discipline, and so you cast my words behind you. These are people who take the covenant on their lips. These are people who, who sound a bit like Christians. They're they're acknowledging God with their lips, and then in the next moments, they they, they want nothing. To, to do with listening to what God says. And what what did the proverbs say about someone who uh hates discipline? Foolish? It's 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 a bit more of a <laughs> impactful word, in my opinion. It says he who hates correction? is Stupid. Stupid. So these people are stupid, biblically speaking. But they're in the building. That's the thing that's scary about this is these people are in the building, and they're talking the talk. But because they hate discipline and cast the word of God behind them, you see that their affections start changing. In verse 18, it says, You see thief, you're pleased with them. Instead of hating evil, there's a there's a not just a toleration, but an enjoyment, a a, a being pleased. And then it says, and you keep company with adulterers. You've, you, you start changing up your company. You hate discipline. You start to have a low regard for the word of God and you cast it behind you. You still show up at church, but you're, you're starting to take pleasure in the company of thieves and adulterers and then it gets to the mouth. In verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So the first group of people are getting rebuked, and it's for almost like a, a sin of omission. They're, they're not being thankful. There's an absence of good things on their lips. But this second group of people, there's a higher severity to the rebuke towards them, and it's you guys are letting your lips have this evilness on it. And this is not just an Old Testament Israel thing like, oh, well, you know, progressive revelation, they were just so kept in the dark. This is re-emphasized towards churches and spirit-filled believers in the New Testament as well. Listen to just the book of James. It says so, so much harmony between 16, 17, and 18, and 19, and 20 in Psalm 50 and what it says in James chapter 3. These people in Psalm 50, they're taking the covenant on their lips, they're blessing God, and then they're cursing their brother. What does James 3 say about the tongue? James 3, 9 through 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. We take his covenant on our lips. And with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these, my brothers, these are not unconverted people. He's saying, you converted Christian people, you have this problem with your lips. You're duplicitous. And where this kind of comes home is, we can talk very disparagingly about people from other theological camps there's a real nastiness that can be on the lips of people who oh well you know those those like hyper charismatic folks they're a bunch of nuts they're a bunch of goofballs we could say stuff like that or the equivalent of those sorts of things or we could talk about uh the dead-dry forms of, of Calvinism and, and hyper-Calvinist, and th- rightly so, there should be a a, a correction of, of, of bad teaching. But then there can be this extremely uncharitableness in speech about those with whom we have difference of opinion theologically and other Christians. That's one application that could apply to us that wasn't just relegated to that Old Testament Israel group that us i mean how are we doing with with that is there too quick a harshness on our lips and our tongues james talks about it and he says these things ought not to be so god speaks to his people he summons them to give them an evaluation and he says i noticed this i noticed this thing going on with your speech and I need to rebuke it. Verse 19 says, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. The Proverbs talk about this free reign thing. It says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And these people were not doing that. Sometimes we don't do that. We can just talk too much. And when that happens, when the paragraphs start multiplying, it's it's not long before there's going to be sin involved. It's not long. But you give your mouth free reign for evil, verse 19, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So within Israel, this is, you know, just other Israelites. This is just people within the camp and even people in your own family. This is your own mother's son. But if we want to transpose it to our modern day context, we could apply this to ourselves by saying against your own brother, someone who's a genuine believer, someone who's actually your brother in Christ but has a different persuasion than you theologically. And this has plagued the church, this campiness, this divisiveness, this, well, you don't see it the way I see it, therefore I'm going to just slice and dice you with my tongue and disparage you and be incredibly uncharitable towards you. It ought not to be so. My brothers, these things ought not to be so, is what the book of James tells us. Verse 21 says, these things you have done, God speaking, these things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You thought that I was one like yourself, God offers this, it sounds pretty harsh. I mean, in the next verse, verse 22, it says, Mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. That can sound like, I thought God is love. What's that, this tear you apart uh, language? But if we zoom out and look at this with what it actually is this is loving that god should speak to these people and highlight this thing going on with their lips he disciplines those he loves and so it would be yeah that's the, that's the scary thing when god does not correct The bad behavior, and he just lets it slide, and there's no words. It says, The parent that doesn't discipline their child hates them. God does not hate the people that are assembled in the building, in the congregation. He tells them this thing that he has against their speaking and their slandering and their talking. Why? Because he's giving them a loving opportunity to repent from it. Why is scripture filled with all these warnings, all these heavy sounding things, and then these threatenings, these, I mean, I'll tear you apart and there'll be none to deliver in verse 22. That's heavy. We would, I mean, can you imagine a parent saying that to their child? You would be like, you talk a, a bit harsh with your children, but God talks this way. Why? Why would He? Why would He give us such harsh language here when He's addressing His people and their errors? Because we do need it. How forgetful there is! I mean, it says it. You, you guys, have thought that I was one like yourself. It's so, so very easy. You just read through the heartbreaking history of Israel, and you got a good king, and everything's great. And then that king disappears, and his son reigns, and immediately, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the people returned to their idolatry. Just like that, so quickly, so easily, it's scary how within just a couple of decades... You just look at the trajectory of American Christianity over the past couple of decades, and it went from one way to, whoa, 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 whoa. how did we get here? And these scripture warnings, if they were heeded with more sobriety and if they were preached with more regularity, then there might have been a prevention of the great nosedive of the fear of God. So these warnings from scripture are actually extremely protective and loving that God should include these harsh things to get the attention of people that are in the building, but that clearly have lost the fear of the Lord, clearly have started to entertain a very low view of who God is. And he shows up and he says, I've been silent, but now I'm rebuking. I'm laying this charge before you. Why? A gracious opportunity to repent of it. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like he's just raring to go to tear people apart. He's slow to anger. So if it's at this point, if he's talking this way, then he's been provoked for a long time. It says, "I, I kept silent, but now it's it's reached the point where I have to say something. I have to tell you guys something." And verse twenty-two says, "Mark this, then." you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver, none to deliver, verse 23. Well, let's hover over that verse 22 just for a moment. We got a couple of imperatives that are that are flying around in this verse. The first one is simply in verse 7, hear, just like the book of Revelation where it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our first imperative is really just Right there in verse 7. Hear, oh my people. It's super scary to think that there's lots of people. I know, maybe not the majority, but there are sprinkled inside the room even right now as I speak, people who just do do not hear. They're tuning it out. Even as I speak, they're like, not for me. Uninteresting. Don't care. They are the people who are guilty of what goes on in verse 17. You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. It is like week in, week out, Sunday in, Sunday out. There are people who just are not paying attention, not listening. So the first imperative is hear. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. And then another one in verse 22 is the mark. Mark this. Write it down. Do what you need to do to remember it. Such forgetful people we are that we need frequent reminders and even just every now and again a text like this to just sort of prick our conscience back into an alertness about who it is we're dealing with, about assessing our speech, assessing, are we keeping our vows, our wedding vows, the covenant that we're involved with with God? Are we keeping it? Are we acting like we're married to him? Are we honoring that covenant relationship between him? And is it showing up on our lips? Are we thanking him continually and offering him the fruit of lips that that praise his name that acknowledge his name or are we are we drifting off into this thing where at the lip level the mouth just starts to talk bad about other people it's not just missing thanksgiving but it's it's bad talk about people that are even our brothers and sisters in christ says verse 22 mark this Mark this, pay attention, take heed, write it down, do what you got to do to seal it to memory, lest you drift off again, lest you veer, lest you let yourself be too free reign with your lips when talking about people that you ought to love and bless rather than curse and slander. Mark this then, and then it says you who forget God, there's a forgetfulness And there are just such consequences, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Extremely high stakes, high cost, high consequences, not just for people, not just for people who are going to be punished by God himself for what it is that they are not repenting of. But also what's on the line is what we see in verse 23 and in verse 14 or no, verse 15. The one who offers thanksgiving, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The glory of God is on the line with the way we speak, with the way we talk to one another, where we, the way we talk about one another, and some just real brief applications here are husbands and wives, I mean, maybe you're not out here on Sunday or on Wednesday and just whispering, you know, to someone sitting next to you like, oh, yeah, you know, that person's a little off. You know, you know what they believe? They believe a little. But husbands and wives, when you're at home, when you're alone, when you're talking with one another, are husbands and wives giving too much free rein to their lips, talking in certain ways that are just Planting ideas. This is how it all starts. It's so subtle. There's just little conversations that happen and before you know it, there's a there's an attitude, there's a looking with just a little bit of a side eye towards someone because you've just let yourself talk too much in an inappropriate way. An application point here would just be husbands, wives. Are you helping one another entertain good, high, wonderful thoughts about the people with whom you're in community? in this church and then even further outside the church because that matters to god too he's looking at the lips he's noticing when thanksgiving is absent and he's noticing when slander is present and it affects him he breaks silence he rebukes and comes on the scene with this harsh heavy language when this is present and so the glory of god is at stake when the world looks at us i mean you remember the new testament Uh, thing of how are they going to know that you're my disciples? By how super critical you are of one another, and you just keep each other in check to make sure that you don't drift in theological error, and you do it with just a sharp, slicey, dicey tongue, and no... That's not how we're going to be identified to the world as Jesus' disciples. It says they're going to know that you're mine by your love for one another and that's going to manifest at the lip level. There's going to be a charitableness. There's going to be speech. Listen to just some New Testament things. This is not just Old Testament grumbling Israel who would complain against God and then complain about Moses and, oh, what did you bring us out here to die? This is this is us, this is this is Christians, this is New Covenant people too. Ephesians 5, well, let's do 4 first. Ephesians 4, you don't got to turn there. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then the next verse says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Is there ways in which we can be having greater manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our midst, but there's a speech-level thing that grieves him? Could it be? Ephesians 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be just prudish, boring silence. No, it says, let there be thanksgiving. There is a jovialness. It's not like we lose all of our sense of humor, but we have redeemed a sense of humor. And it's not filthy, foolish, crude talk, but there's a thanksgiving that characterizes the way believers talk when they get together. And guys, I'm so much guilty of this in my own home. My wife will tell you just how silly I am in speech. And it's not like a laughing matter. It's like a shameful matter. I am too free reign with my speech in the household. And you know what's sobering about it is <laughs> you, the things that come out of your kids are probably a reflect, a reflection at some level of what, what you're showing them. I'm modeling for my daughter goofiness. As the priest of my household, I give too much free rein to my lips and my wife and my daughter, occasionally I'll hear something come out of their mouths and I'm like, that's me. I did that. I fostered that culture in my household of being too free rein with my lips, too silly, too foolish talk, too much multitude of words and sin not lacking in it. So there's just an application for fathers and mothers and even children big brothers big sisters are you making your household culture one where the speech is is not is not measured is not careful gives too much free reign i'm guilty of it so don't hear me like i'm saying oh you know this is me I need this. I need to watch my lips because the glory of God is at stake here. Rather than all this silliness, I should be cultivating an atmosphere in my home of thanksgiving. So many little pit stops, so many little uh, moments of the day can be opportunities for really good discipleship, cultivating thanksgiving. Literally, the meal thing, the praying before meals... That is not to be despised as just some, all right, well, you know, you can do that in a real quick rushed way that resembles what's going on here in Psalm 50, where it's just formalism. It's just the burnt sacrifice and there's no heart reality behind it. Just Lord, thank you for the food. Or you can really just pause, slow down, Curb your appetite for two to three minutes and lead your family in a prayer that is sincerely fragrant to God, where he looks at it and says, that's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I smell that. That's a pleasing aroma to me. Your lips are lovely when you do that with your family. We should, rather than just breezing through it, I'm guilty. I uh, had had moments in the rear view mirror where there was more of an emphasis on let's really slow down, let's really thank God. And more recently, there's just been that declension of let's just eat the food. And, oh, yes, thank, thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. These are pit stop opportunities to do something that's fragrant and beautiful before God in our household. So husbands, wives, big brothers, big sisters, take it to heart, mark it, hear it, knowing that the glory of God in your household is at stake. The glory of God can either be increased. You can glorify him or you can rob him of a a sweet fragrance. Joel, on, on Wednesday, mentioned he read Revelation 4, talking about the prayers of the saints like incense rising up before God. Why not do that more often? Why not give a decided effort to 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 do those sorts of things more regularly, more sincerely and heartfeltly in your household. Just a a point of application for for households and families. Because this does matter. This is not just Israel. This is New Testament stuff. I find it very interesting. This is what we've, this is one of the things that the Lord has done in saving us. We were a thankless filthy-lipped people, and then the Lord gave us his Holy Spirit inside of us, and where there was just radio silence in terms of praise and slander, gossip, complaining, bitterness, all kinds of just foul water coming up from the streams of our heart, just polluted, dirty water. He's given us streams of living water. He's giving us actual praise that can come off of our lips, and I just look at Isaiah 6, under that lens, and just think about the wonder of conversion. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is appearing before God. And he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, immediately. In the presence of God, a prophet like Isaiah is aware, oh my goodness, my lips are dirty. If Isaiah feels that way, surely we can stand to have some self-reflection on, what are my lips like? Lord, would you... Would you give me just a touch, a sanctifying touch of the coals like that? Would you let Jesus Christ wash my lips afresh and just make them the sort of thing that has fragrant praise and thanksgiving so that you be glorified? Pray with me real quick. Father, search us. Is there too much an absence of this thing? Is there not enough thankfulness given what's true about us as your redeemed people? Is there enough evidence on our lips when we're not in the building singing songs? Is there enough evidence Monday through Saturday that we're a thankful people? That our lips have, instead of foolish talk and crude talk and complaining talk, praise the fruit of lips that acknowledge your name. Lord, please help. Help me. I know that I fall short here. I know I set a bad example to my family and even to people in this church, Lord God, by letting my lips have too much of a free reign. Lord, would you search us and help us this morning to just have a renewed dedication to giving you the sort of sacrifices that please you, that you like, that are an aroma to you lord just lips that praise you father we we want to walk and talk consistent with who we are and what has been done for us you've saved us lord we don't want to cast aside your word we don't want to hate discipline we don't want to look at a sermon like this and say ah what's that that's not what i came for on sunday morning lord do convict wherever it's needed By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we we want to please you. We want our lips to please you. We don't want to be plicitous, taking your covenant on our lips on Wednesday and Sunday and then slanderous, bad talk other days. Please, Lord, touch that coal. Help our lips. And Lord, even, even now, during the singing, let it not just be ritual and routine. Get something that you love in this building today lord god get praise that you deserve get hearts that match lips and lips that match hearts sincere joy sincere thanksgiving lord even if days are really hard weeks are really hard let it be a sacrifice of thanksgiving lord god that those songs even if we don't feel a bunch of circumstantial joy and gladness because everything's going good lord Get glory for yourself by people having hard weeks, hard stretches, saying, I'll praise you anyway. I'm going to give you the fruit of lips that acknowledge your name. I'm going to give you sincere, heartfelt worship, even though stuff is very hard in my life right now. Lord, that glorifies you, and we want to glorify you. Help us this morning as we sing, as we talk with one another, put a guard over our mouth, help us speak with one another in a way that is appropriate while we're in your house, Lord. We love you. We thank you for giving us chapters like this. Psalm 50s and Revelation 2 and 3s to just check us and sober us and safeguard us from ways in which we might be drifting into things that are displeasing to you, Lord. Help us this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.